Job 4 and 5. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, my ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth, between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces, they perish forever, without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the, in the daytime, and grope at noonday, as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear, and know it for your good.
Well, good morning to each of you. If you've seen in the bulletin that we're looking at roughly uh, 25 chapters of Scripture this morning, um, there is a sense in which we are doing that. Uh, we're looking at the elements of those. Uh, we're not going to cover everything that's within those, of course. In our study of Job, we are at the place now where Job begins this dialogue with his friends. They have come, they have sat with him a week, and now they have heard him cry out, and they reply to him. Verse 17 of chapter 4, in a sense, sums up the question that both the friends and Job are inquiring to answer. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And Job's friends answer this question with what Christopher Ashe calls the system. Uh, Christopher Ashe writes a, a modern commentary on the book of Job, and, and I recommend it to you. It's a very thoughtful work, um, and it's not just a commentary. It's, uh, it's, I think it's more sermon than, than commentary, uh, but it's, it's very helpful in helping to understand. The system simply says, if you do wrong, you will get suffering. If you do right you will get blessing. That's the system. If you do wrong, bad things will happen to you. If you do rightly, money, wealth, happiness. And in many ways, this is the way the world works. If we think about the wisdom of the world... And if you remember from our introduction into Job, the wisdom of the world is the way God set things to work. Okay, so for the most part, those, the system is true. If you don't work, then you suffer. If you don't do rightly, then normally bad things happen to you. If you do good things, normally good things are returned to you. And so in, in these arguments back and forth, we're actually looking at the inverse of those. And that's a bit of the problem. Because Job's friends are saying, you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. You're blessed, you must have done something right. You see, the system is impersonal. The system merely says, you get what you deserve. And that's a system we're all comfortable with. But Job says something else is happening. And we'll pick up his comments in chapter 9, and I'll read that at this point. And we see in verse 2, he asks the very same question. How can a man be in the right before God? Job 9. Then Job answered and said, 
Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself.
this text gives us a picture of what Job is reaching for. And we'll return a bit to look at some of the, the individual phrases and the appeals that he make, makes. But for now, we want to we look at uh, four specific things. We want to look at some of the arguments that Job's friends make throughout their, their speeches. We want to look at the values that Job's friends portray. And then we want to look at, at Job's arguments in reply. We want to look at his values. And from there, to consider some things for ourselves. And so the argument of, of Job's friends, they are primarily towards Job, and they refer to God. Okay, so the, the, the three men, they, they're saying things to Job, you this and you that, and if you understood, and they refer to God. Okay, so, and that's key because Job does the opposite. Job speaks to God and refers to his friends um, in his arguments. So there's a, a bit of a difference there. But the first argument of Job's friends is, you must have done something wrong. And they say this in numerous ways. They hold up the justice of God. They say, God does not pervert justice. God is not unjust. And so if you are suffering, you deserve it. You must have done something to deserve it. And we see this argument gathering steam. Later on in the arguments, they actually charge him with taking advantage of the poor and not taking care of the widows and doing all of these things, which Job himself says that he's done throughout his life. But they take an assumption. You're suffering. You must have done something wrong. And at the end of their arguments, they're charging him with actual sinful behaviors, even though they themselves have not observed it. They say, God rewards people for their actions. Evil will befall the sinful, and blessing will come to the righteous. Zophar says, God exacts less than your guilt deserves. He actually looks at Job, as pitiful as he is, really as pitiful as a human could ever be, and says, you actually deserve worse than this. Bildai in, in chapter 18 says, The light of the wicked is put out. You are on the road to hell if you don't acknowledge his sin. And then he does this in a long set of chapters. Basically saying, Job, you've done wrong. You're on the way to hell. The second line of reasoning that they bring to him is, Your words against God are dangerous. One cannot speak to God in a questioning way. And one of the things that we start to see in their arguments is they don't have an understanding of a personal God. God is somewhere out there. He's not here. But He set this place in motion. And He set the rules in motion, and all He is is the arbiter at the end that says, you did good, you did bad. God, in their worldview, is not personal. And so they charge Job by saying, your words against God are dangerous. You're questioning Him. That's something we as humans cannot do. In essence, we, we only accept from God what He gives. We cannot approach Him. We cannot know Him. We cannot understand Him. 
we cannot seek to, help, to understand how he's working, on our, working in our lives. We cannot question. In the end, what their values say about God is that there is no grace in God. There is only just judgment for our actions. In a sense, put the coin in the machine, and whichever coin you put in is what you get out. And God is the system. What are the values that we see his friends portraying? The first is that the state of blessing is the ultimate form of living and results from right living. And so if someone is blessed, if we see them happy, if we see them wealthy, if we see them not suffering, if we see things going well for them, then they must be living the right way. And God is rewarding their right living. And they actually say this to Job. Even in his pitiful state, they say, turn back to God, confess your sins, do good things, and God will again bless you. As I mentioned earlier, their value system said that God is a distant and impersonal being. He simply waits for your actions to reply with either blessing or cursing. And God is in that system is not knowable outside of His granting of suffering or His granting of blessing. Another thing that they represent is that God is only truly known to the righteous. In their responses to Job, they're often saying, yes, we know what you're saying, but you're the one who's suffering. You can't know God. We are the blessed ones. We are the ones who know God. They clearly represent themselves as the righteous, knowing, wise ones, and Job as unrighteous. Zophar says, if you prepare your heart, put iniquity far away, then you will lift up your face without blemish. If you pursue righteousness, then God will fix all of this. Do as we say. Do as we, the righteous wise ones, say, and God will attend to your restoration. And now we look at the arguments of Job. So in summary, the arguments of his friends were, you're not living life according to the system. You must have done something wrong, and God is merely paying you back for the way you have lived. And in Job's arguments, again, he's primarily speaking to God, and his friends are there to hear, and he refers to them. It is interesting their sort of insults to each other at the beginning of each of their, their words. Uh, they'll say things like, yeah, I know that too. You know, the one goes on, he says, yeah, I know that wisdom, that's, but this is different. And then the next one says, no, Job, do we have to put up with your ongoing talk? And then he launches into his thing. And so we have this 
kind of back and forth between persons. But Job is primarily appealing to God. And his contention, first of all, is that I am righteous, but God has turned against me and will no longer hear my voice. God is pouring out his wrath on me. And in chapter 16, he says, Surely now God has worn me out. He declares his righteousness in chapter 26. There's no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. We know when our prayers are pure. We know when our hands are clean. You can see this in children. If you've ever corrected one of your children and it was undeserved, there's a protestation that takes, takes place there. There's a protesting that takes place that's different from when they think it's merely unfair. Okay, So if they think it's merely unfair, they're probably going to whimper a little bit. But if they know they weren't wrong, they're going to put up a fuss. And it's a different sort of fuss. And, and that's the fuss we see Job giving. I'm not wrong. I have not turned against God. I have not sinned against God. We see him in kind of his middle arguments developing the idea that I would contend with God. And we see this in, in chapter 9 that we read. I would contend with God, but I am human. In chapter 9, we see a great unfolding of God's power, of His sovereignty, and of all of the things He has done. He shakes the earth of its place. He commands the sun and it doesn't rise. He stretches out the heavens. He made the stars. He develops the glorious godness of God. And He recognizes that He's merely a human. And He would contend with God but he's not God. Job recognizes God's sovereignty. And sometimes he questions the rightness, and that's one of the things we see in God's response to him, that he questioned God's sovereignty. But he says, though I am in the right, I must appeal to him for mercy. So we recognize God's sovereignty. He crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He mocks the calamity of the innocent. So Job is questioning. He's contending with God. And he asks the question in chapter 9, primarily, what is my recourse? What do I have to appeal to God with? And he considers three things at the very end of chapter 9. He says in 20, verses 27 to 29, he says, I, I could move on and I could cheer up. He says, I, I could just move on. God is destined to condemn me. God is against me. His sovereignty has turned against me. I'm just going to move on and bear with it. Put a smile on my face and carry on. The second thing he says in verses 30 to 31, I could wash myself white as snow. And he's speaking of a spiritual washing. He could pursue cleanliness and godliness. I could really try hard to be good. 
He says, but it seems you're intent on making me out to be filthy. And so, what would the use be in that? And thirdly, he says, he, could, he would find a mediator. He would find a mediator. If only you were like a man, and we could find an arbitrator to settle this between us, then I would have someone to appeal to you without fear. You see, an arbitrator exists when two people don't trust each other, and they're afraid of each other, but they both trust the arbitrator. And Job says, but there isn't one. I don't have somebody I can trust that can appeal to God on my behalf. If we consider these three ideas, I wonder sometimes if they're not our glib responses to people in suffering that aren't really helpful. They hold a partial truth. Things like, it'll all turn out in the end. It'll all turn out all right. Trust God in this kind of glib way. And, And there's a glimmer of truth in that. Our hope is our trust in God. But if it's this sort of surface, just just move on and cheer up. God will take care of it. Just, Just do the best you can, and God will bless you. If someone's struggling deeply in sin, just do the best you can. God will take care of it. It's that kind of surface response. And and Job is saying, no, that's, that's not good enough. We also see in these three steps the gospel. Place Jesus as the one who delivers those three. Jesus is that mediator, that arbitrator who is human, who stands between us and God, who we can appeal to, and he speaks to the Father. We, unable to wash ourselves white as snow, rest on the blood of the Savior who can wash us white as snow. We, because of His actions on our behalf, can move on with true joy, can see our suffering as His pathway to our righteousness. In chapter 10, then, Job continues with four questions. And if you've suffered for a long period of time, you've probably considered these questions as well. The first question, why why are you against me? Why are you against me, God? Why does it feel like you're out to bring me harm? Why are your eyes upon me? Why are you watching me? Why don't you watch somebody else? Take your eye of perfect holiness that exposes my brokenness. Why are you watching me? Take that somewhere else. And as he considers those questions, he follows it down. Why did you create me? If you, if you created me to be against me, then then why did you create me? And finally, why don't you just kill me? If you, God, are sovereignly against me, just just kill me. Just take me out of this suffering. 
And if we're honest, those are questions that sometimes we've asked. What are the values that we see Job holding to? First of all, Job misses the closeness of God over all of his possessions and relationships. The one thing that Job longs for is the presence of God. In chapter 12, he says, God conversed with me. I who called on God and he answered me. I long for that. I must be able to make my appeal to him. In in chapter 13, I must present my case to God. He longs for that conversation to be able to present his case. He longs for God to speak to him. In chapter 13, verse 22, he says, Then call, and I will answer. God, call to me, speak to me. Job misses the closeness, the personal interactions with God. You see, his friends see God as this impersonal, judging being. Job sees him as a near friend. The second value that Job has is he understands the awful sovereignty of God as ruler over all. Everything, even evil and suffering, is under his control. Now, for sure, we cannot say that God is responsible for evil. But as we see in chapter 1, Satan performs his evil against Job under the permission of God. It's under the control of God. In chapter 12, 13 to 25, God does as he wishes in nature, in leaders, and in nations. This God is not as simple as do good and get good. And Job asks, will not his majesty terrify you? The sovereignty of God is at one point a reassuring, comforting thing. But is it also a bit of a terrible thing? The third value of Job is that he understands the difference between claiming perfection and claiming blamelessness. Job understands his sinfulness. He understands his own personal brokenness, but he also knows that he has appealed to God. He has sacrificed. He has maintained an open relationship of integrity with God. He's been honest about his sin. Chapter 13, verse 23, Make me know my iniquities. We see in chapter 1 that Job was careful to sacrifice for the sins of his children. And we can be sure that the same care and concern for his own spiritual well-being was taken. So Job can say, I have been open and clear before God. Job hopes for the resurrection. Turn to chapter 14, 
and I'll read from verse 7 to 9. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. In chapter 16, verse 19, My witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. And in chapter 19, verse 25, probably the, the, the verse we all know from Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand on the earth. Job understands that even in the brokenness of the world, there is the hope of resurrection. The image of the tree, a strong tree cut down, but yet at the presence of God, at the watering, can grow anew. And so this morning I would ask us some questions. Do we understand God? Do we understand the gospel? Do we understand where we are in relationship to God? Or do we appeal to the system? I've done rightly. I deserve blessing. We never like to point to ourselves and say I've done wrongly, but he's done, she's done wrongly and they deserve is God this impersonal, impersonal being who merely judges the affairs of men and isn't involved in the outcome? Do sometimes we assume the opposite argument that if one is suffering, then there must be something wrong? Or probably more commonly, we see someone living as a blessed and wealthy individual, and we assume God is rewarding them for what they've done right. If we believe in the way of the system, we say a couple things about God. We say that God is not present in suffering. See, if, if God is merely the one who rewards good with blessing, and evil with suffering, then God is not present in the suffering. Suffering is only punishment. Suffering is deserved. If we believe in the system, we say that God really isn't personal at all. He doesn't particularly care about us. His function is to merely dole out the required rewards for our actions. We have a, an image in art and in history and in sculpture. It's, it's the blind lady justice who stands here. Her eyes are covered. She cannot see. And she's impartial. Is that who God is? And the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus proved and answered Job's questions. No, God is not impersonal. 
He's personal enough that he became human, that he walked the earth as you and I did, that he suffered as you and I did, that he suffered temptation as you and I did. And that he ultimately bore the wrath of God for human sin. You see, part of what we say in the system is that justice reigns. Justice must be held forth. And that is true. But in Jesus, we have both the personal God and justice upheld. Romans 8, uh, verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is broken. And suffering isn't just God meeting out justice, but it's present in all of the world because of sin. And all of creation, not just humanity, longs for the King to come and to redeem and to resurrect His creation. And in the coming story of Job, as we'll see, God does bring restoration and resurrection. Some questions as we conclude here. Is your response to brokenness despair? We see that in Job. We see him despairing that God is not present. But if that is our response to suffering, and it's a legitimate one. Jesus is the one who came to the man at the pool who waited for years to gain healing. And he healed him. Is your response to suffering to see God as punishing you? you know, sometimes we're, we're suffering. We've gotten the result of our actions. And we see that God is, in a sense, turned against us. Know that Jesus suffered the ultimate death to bring reconciliation to God. Is your response to demand justice? Jesus came and bore the wrath of God on behalf of sinful men. The debt is paid, and restoration and resurrection are available to all who believe and who place their life in His hands to follow and obey. The brokenness that Job experienced. 
was not due to his sinfulness as his friends accused. But it was God who was working. It was God who was telling a story that was beyond what Job understood. In each of our lives, are we clenching and holding on to our own telling of that story? Or are we willing to allow God to work His way in our lives? Let's have a song.